0: Welcome to the Iowa Geriatric Education Center Lecture Series. My name is Susan Schultz, and I'll be talking today about managing psychiatric complications of dementia. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Iowa. My clinical work involves managing complications of dementia that may include agitation, psychosis, and other serious conditions. I'll disclose at the start of my talk, I do not have financial interests or relationships with manufacturers or products of services I might be discussing. I do also want to mention that I may discuss pharmaceuticals for uses that are not approved by the FDA. I'll talk about this more later, but many medications often used in dementia do not have an FDA indication. I'll be overviewing today some challenges in prescribing particularly for complications of dementia and challenges in general in managing psychiatric conditions um, in terms of psychopharmacology. We have a great num a great degree of discretion, particularly in psychiatry, and really across medicine, for practitioners who use psychiatric medications. Very often, the conditions, particularly related to men to dementia, um, involve off-label use of prescription medicines, and this represents a unique challenge, and really. Um, and really asks us to think very carefully when we choose various interventions in patients with dementia. So I think as we approach the scenario of what to do when we're asked to intervene for behavioral complications, it's very important to know very carefully how each how each potential medication works, and how it was approved and what warnings it may have, to develop a rationale for the use of psychiatric medications in dementia, and really be able to explain both to yourself as well as patients and families why it may be useful and what to look for in terms of treatment response, as well as what risks may be associated with various medications. At this time, there are risk warnings that I will describe with various interventions for psychiatric problems in dementia. And it's important to discuss those with family and be aware of those, but also not to let concerns avoid use of medications that may be helpful for these patients. One thing that may often be helpful is to look at meta-analyses or large-scale studies or the Cochrane reviews that oftentimes involve meta-analyses of treatment trials to help guide us. And I will mention a few of these studies in the course of this presentation, but encourage you to look to those as guidelines for future use of medications in dementia. Lastly, it's quite important to rationalize not only the use of medicines, but also the careful use of only one medication, if at all possible, and in the context where polypharmacy is necessary, be able to rationalize and justify the use of more than one medication for a psychiatric condition in dementia. Now it's important to start off with why why we need behavioral interventions for dementia and what types of psychiatric interventions are most often used. And I think for most clinicians it's clear that contrary to the public perception that memory impairment is the primary disturbance of dementia, particularly Alzheimer's disease, which of course it is the most quantifiable and clearly central to the diagnosis. But many of us realize that in terms of the burden of clinical care, it's more often the emotional dysregulation and the other accompanying symptoms such as apathy and irritability that often bring the patient to clinical attention. And to review these briefly, insight is very much worth discussing in the clinical care setting. Um, particularly Alzheimer's dementia, very often has significant impairment in insight, meaning that an individual is not able to self-assess either their memory limitations or their functional limitations, emotional dysregulation, or perceptual changes that may include paranoia or irritability. Now unfortunately there are very few interventions, and, and actually There's really no clear way to intervene for impaired insight, and often this is a burden of care for families who feel the need to explain why they may be setting limits on activities or changing the care setting. It's a very common source of distress when the patient is not able to appreciate the need for care or appreciate the need for limitations now there is no medication that really will ameliorate this situation but education to the family that impaired insight is central to the diagnosis and it's not their fault that they can't fully explain or achieve a consensus with with the patient because simply insight is often simply not there now particularly as dementia progresses anxiety and often apathy that may be present early on tend to transgress over to agitation, and, or, or um, continue on to agitation and restlessness, paranoia, and aggression often occur as the dementia progresses. Now agitation, paranoia, and aggression are perhaps the most distressing of all to families and care providers, so for the most part I'll be focusing on interventions that are tailored for these conditions. As you might imagine in the care, set, care setting, resistiveness to cares is a significant problem that often isn't rated on rating skills. Although Ladislav Wallisler has um, written some very nice work, and I'd refer you to work in this area on resistiveness to cares. In the clinical care setting, it's during bath times, meal times, changing clothes, um, all of these activities very often are the source of precipitating aggression or irritability, and very often require more of a behavioral intervention. However, very often accompanying psychiatric medications are also used in this scenario, which results in a difficult balance of PRN use of medications versus scheduled use and how to tailor treatment in a way that's safest and most efficacious for the patient. In the more severe stages, spontaneous vocalizations and disruptive motor behaviors are another very serious behavioral consequence of dementia, with unfortunately very few controlled clinical trials that that give us clear guidelines for interventions. And often it seems that the interventions are as variable as the patients themselves in figuring out what triggers tend to precipitate symptoms and how best to change the environment in a way that reduces the likelihood of agitation and disruption. Now, unfortunately, um, at least one of the above symptoms, if not multiple, occurs at some point in the majority of the course of illness in patients with dementia. And I think emphasizing this point very early on um, for families and caregivers not to be not to frighten them in any by any means, but simply to lay it out there that we do observe these problems and they shouldn't feel that their care is insufficient simply because these problems do tend to occur. This is simply part of the natural course of the illness that unfortunately a significant burden of care, but there are some studies, as I'll discuss here, that do give us some guidance for interventions for these conditions. So if families are aware and bring them to the attention of the care provider early on, there's a lot that can be done to ameliorate the severity of the course of illness. Now, before I go on to talk a little bit more about pharmacologic interventions, I'm sure that many clinicians out there are aware of the public health advisories that have been troubling um, and created sort of an extra burden in the decision-making process for, um, for trying to intervene with various therapies, particularly for agitation and psychosis in the context of dementia. Early on, actually before 2005, there was an initial letter to clinicians with a concern about cerebrovascular risk factors, particularly with the medication risperidone. Later, a FDA public health advisory was issued in 2005 about a death with antipsychotics risk That resulted from an analysis of a number of FDA trials that had been in process over the preceding several years involving over 5,000 patients. Looking at the data in several different analyses, it was concluded that there was a 1.6 to 1.7-fold increase in mortality when antipsychotics were used in the context of behavioral disturbances in the course of dementia. Not specific to dementia subtype, however, many of these studies did focus on dementia of the Alzheimer's type. Now, in terms of the cause of mortality, it's very difficult to find clues as to the mechanism when the overall causes were noted to be related to heart disease or infectious disease, pneumonia and particularly aspiration pneumonia being extremely common in this particular age group. Now, if you look at heart disease and infectious illness overall in terms of mortality, irrespective of antipsychotic use, those are the most common um, noted causes of mortality among late-stage dementia patients in any case. However, there was an increased risk associated with the presence of antipsychotics versus placebo observed. The way that I've tried to put this together is, you know, potentially... Any medication that may incur sedation or a reduction in sensorium or even potentially mobility may increase the risk of atelectasis or aspiration, and so by virtue of trying to achieve some type of effectiveness, it may be that that risk of aspiration may have been increased Um, Furthermore, as I'll discuss later, each of these medications does have some degree of hypotensive or orthostatic hypotensive effect, which may have increased the likelihood of the observation of heart disease mortality. So clearly, as we try to intervene and achieve an effective result, there's a balance where we may be placing patients at some risk, for um, for mortality that, that requires very careful monitoring, and that balance of monitoring and judging efficacy is probably um, the goal that we'd all seek to achieve. Now, thinking about balancing mortality risk versus um, improving quality of life, it's important to consider that mortality risk could potentially be nonspecific, um, irrespective of what medication may be chosen um, as a potential intervention. Now this, this is certainly something up for debate, but one study that does shed some light on this potential possibility is a study of nursing home residents who received any medication that's noted on the Beers criteria. Now, the Beers criteria are a list of medications that are considered to be potentially deleterious, particularly for patients in late, late life in the nursing home setting. Now, the Beers criteria includes long-acting benzodiazepines, medicines with anticholinergic effects, any medication that may reduce sensorium, or... Um, increase the likelihood of whether it's sedation, falls, orthostatic hypotension, or other potential adverse effects, including things like warfarin or digoxin that may have um, issues with um, monitoring therapeutic levels. So in this particular study, looking at a large sample of nursing home residents receiving any potentially inappropriate prescription, which does include some antipsychotic medications, but also any medication on the Beers Criteria list, also noted an increased risk of death at 1.28 if the prescriptions were used um, scheduled in the preceding month, and up to 1.89 with intermittent use, which approximates the risk also observed with antipsychotic medications. So one might consider that we really do have a challenge, whether it's antipsychotics that are selected or other medications that potentially could um, impair sensorium or uh, have any type of um, sedative or hypotensive properties or other risk for any deleterious effects. So I think the issue here is to highlight the exquisite sensitivity of patients in this stage of life to nearly any intervention um, as well as risk for dehydration that may occur in the context of sedation or simply in any context or um, urinary retention and all of the other um, sensitivities that this population has to to literally any any intervention that that we try to select so now if we think about what approach do we use to the use of antipsychotics for behavioral problems i think you know one approach might be to to avoid their use entirely however the burden of illness Um, really challenges us to think carefully about how can we help and how can these be used safely if we do have significant problems that are severely impairing either safety or quality of life, particularly in the nursing home or care setting. Now, it's important to remember from the start that there is an FDA indication of psychosis in Alzheimer's disease. Now, for a drug to be approved by the FDA, there has to be a clinical syndrome that is cohesive and warrants an indication. So over the last several years, there was a great effort to demonstrate that psychosis in Alzheimer's disease does constitute a significant and cohesive syndrome sufficient to warrant an indication for treatment. So the indication, in fact, has been approved by the FDA. However, no drug, whether it's antipsychotics or any other drug, as yet has been demonstrated to have significant efficacy to warrant um, an FDA indication for the purpose of treating psychosis in AD. However, there have been multiple trials showing modest effects, but in aggregate, there's been no, um, there has not been sufficient data to warrant an FDA indication. Now that leaves the clinician in a very difficult scenario of uh, there's clearly a syndrome that requires treatment, but there is no drug as yet that is actually approved for the use in that particular syndrome. Now, to help answer this question, um, it's been nearly 10 years ago now, there's been a Katie study, the Clinical Antipsychotic Trials of Intervention Effectiveness Study that was geared to evaluate the most commonly used medications in this scenario, which were the atypical antipsychotic medications. So I'll overview for you today what the Cady trial has concluded and some more recent data looking more carefully at symptom ratings in the Cady trial. And I think this lends itself to the question of why are atypical antipsychotics the most commonly used medications in this condition? And what specific properties define an atypical antipsychotic? And how can we use those properties to make judicious selections of treatment choice when we're in the clinical setting and confronted with a patient with specific vulnerabilities, specific medical conditions, and specific symptom profiles? that that challenge us to make a good treatment decision. So to overview very briefly, the Katie study was a controlled comparison study of intervention effectiveness meant to approximate the real-world setting. Now the Katie study was addressing specifically Alzheimer's dementia patients, so vascular dementia patients were not included in this trial, who specifically required treatment for agitation or psychosis and there was a requirement for neuropsychiatric inventory ratings of sufficient, of sufficient severity of agitation or psychosis to warrant intervention with a medication. Now this study was unique in the sense that it enrolled community dwelling participants, which is quite different from the most common treatment um, scenario, which is very often the nursing homes. Now, the study was unique in the sense that it involved 421 patients, which is the largest of its kind for a controlled effectiveness trial. The mean age was 77, which was somewhat young for for many of the studies of dementia patients, and there was a um, 56% female um, population within this sample. Most were in their own home, uh, and a small group was living with extended family or assisted living. Now, it's important to note that this sample did have um, significant dementia with a mini-mental status exam um, mean of 15. The neuropsychiatric inventory rating was 36.9. The neuropsychiatric inventory is a a nice comprehensive inventory that includes depression, um, psychosis, and agitation. So it spans the gamut of relevant symptoms often seen in the context of Alzheimer's disease. And then the brief psychiatric rating scale was also obtained with a mean of 27.8 in this sample. Now, to overview the study design just a bit, I'll focus on the phase one treatment period, which is the treatment phase that to date has published data. Of the 450 patients in this study, patients were randomized to compare olanzapine, quetiapine, and risperidone versus placebo. For the management of agitation or psychosis in dementia, these three being the most commonly used antipsychotic medications um, used in this population. Now, certainly, since that time, aripiprazole with the trade name Abilify, and ziprasidone with the trade name Geodon, are also uh, occasionally used in the context of Alzheimer's disease. However, you know the, there is. Um, very, There's insufficient data or clinical trials to really support their use as well as safety concerns particularly, particularly with suprazidone and um, QTC interval prolongation. So I'll be focusing on the data that exists today um, primarily between olanzapine, quetiapine, and risperdal and talk a little bit about some other meta-analyses that address these and some more recent data analysis that address these three drugs in particular. Now, the Katie trial design compared these three drugs and allowed the clinician blindly to increase the dose depending on how symptoms were um, responding or not responding and depending on whether you know intolerance was apparent due to adverse effects. So the analysis design for this study was looking at both tolerability and effectiveness. And the phase one aspect of this study was to allow enrollment into a double blind period with a survival analysis such that patients could be re-randomized at any point in the first phase. At which time they would go to a different antipsychotic if they failed the first one, either due to lack of efficacy or lack of tolerance. They would be re randomized to an alternate, and citalopram was also used as an SSRI comparator in phase two. However, phase two treatment data have not yet been published. So again, it was an effectiveness trial, which is different from an efficacy trial in the sense that there was clinical involvement in titration of the doses that helps us understand in a blinded way what doses were perceived by clinicians to be the sort of average um, effective doses. Now I want to spend a moment on this because I think this is meaningful, that in a blinded manner. The mean olanzapine dose was 5.5 milligrams per day at the time the patient reached their average dose in the first phase of the trial, which would have been prior to either achieving some effectiveness or ultimately being re-randomized due to adverse effects or lack of response. So the average dose or mean dose was 5.5 for olanzapine. 56.5 56.5 for quetiapine, and one milligram of risperidone. Now, it's very much worth thinking about these doses, because for people that treat younger patients, perhaps with schizophrenia, these are substantially lower doses than one might see in younger patients. And these were achieved in a blinded way where, F, where effectiveness was being judged with, through, um, through sequential rating scales. So, and I think as I'll talk about a little bit later, the data do suggest that once a person, a patient exceeds these doses, the the risk of adverse effects starts to outweigh the potential benefits of these doses, and so it's worth bearing in mind that staying at a low dose and having an opportunity to achieve some type of treatment response is a very judicious way to approach these medications as opposed to titrating too rapidly with too much sense of urgency and running quickly into an adverse effect window as opposed to staying within a potentially beneficial window. Now at the end of the day from the first phase in the first analysis from the Katie study In their analysis where a survival curve was generated that looked at duration on the medication um, before it was discontinued, either due to lack of efficacy or um, adverse events, it was concluded that for the treatment of psychosis, aggression, or agitation, the adverse events tended to offset the advantages in the efficacy of atypical antipsychotics. Now, this left us, after a very large study, with with a significant challenge in knowing what to do next. It really left us with the concern that there's a very, very important need to monitor for adverse effects, because it's very clear that adverse effects will um, definitely truncate the ability to achieve a treatment response for these medications. Now, after the first analysis left us with this concern, there are new findings that have been reported that looked very specifically at individual symptom ratings as opposed to the initial analysis that simply looked in aggregate whether the symptoms or whether the the medications were stopped due to lack of efficacy. But looking at individual symptom ratings um, helped um helped um, elucidate some findings that suggested that there were some slight improvements with individual medications that was reported by Sulzer and colleagues in the AJP in the summer of 2008. Now specifically these findings investigated weekly changes within that first phase of the treatment trial. And within that first phase, looking specifically at neuropsychiatric inventory or MPI total score, there was evidence that the risperidone and risperidone, um, I'm sorry, olanzapine and risperidone patients, when compared to placebo, had more improvement on the MPI total score. Within the sample as well, risperidone patients showed improvement on the clinical global impression of change relative to placebo in the first phase as well. If you look specifically at individual symptoms on the BPRS, the Brief Psychiatric Rating Scale, the hostile suspiciousness factor improved in patients on olanzapine and risperidone within that first phase. And on the psychosis factor on the BPRS, there was a significant improvement on risperidone compared to placebo in the first phase of treatment as well. Looking at individual symptoms, there was also noted to be a worsening compared to placebo in the olanzapine-treated patients on the withdrawn depression factor um, within the BPRS. And as I'll mention later, it's possible that the sedative properties of the olanzapine may have contributed to the the worsening on the withdrawn um, factor on the BPRS. Now, these findings from the Sulzer analysis of the Katie data are somewhat consistent with a similar report that came out not long ago that was a Cochrane Review summary that looked at a meta-analysis of 16 studies using atypical antipsychotics for aggression and psychosis in Alzheimer's disease that was published by Clive Ballard and colleagues. They concluded, looking at a number of studies in aggregate that were placebo-controlled, that there was evidence for improvement in aggression with risperidone and olanzapine also compared to placebo. And this is in line with the, the conclusions from the Sulzer analysis of the Katie data. Also in line with the Sulzer analysis is that improvement in psychosis with risperidone was observed compared to placebo. So now we do have at least some converging information that if you look specifically at psychosis and aggression or hostility ratings, there does seem to be some signal for effectiveness with risperidone as well as olanzapine. But now, unfortunately, the downside of the Cochrane Review also concluded that within the risperidone and olanzapine-treated patients who had demonstrated some benefits, there was also a higher incidence of adverse events, which included cerebrovascular, extrapyramidal side effects, and other adverse outcomes. So that brings us back to this very delicate balance. Uh, there's a signal for some improvement there for a condition that is you know, a very serious condition that does require an intervention. But clearly, there is a risk of adverse events that requires very close monitoring. It's also very important to pay attention that the adverse events do appear to be significantly related to, to dose of antipsychotics. That once you exceed two milligrams of risperidone and five to ten of olanzapine, dropouts due to adverse events increase significantly, and this is also in line with the earlier mentioned that um, patients were titrated only to about one milligram of resperidone um, during the phase one of the K-D trial and only about 5.5 milligrams of olanzapine in the context of the first phase, suggesting that as you press to higher doses, you're more likely to have um, intolerance of the, of the intervention. So, unfortunately, this gives us some glimmers of hope that these may be helpful, but really don't give us much more guidance, other than to look very carefully and monitor for adverse events. And that challenges us, really, to think a little bit more about, you know, why are we using atypicals in the first place? Why do we think they may be helpful for hostility and psychosis? And how can we choose among them in a way that gives us some guides or at least some ability to rationalize why we've chosen what we've chosen so that we can explain both to ourselves and to our patients and families why this may be helpful and that we will monitor carefully for a potential adverse event. and anticipate what adverse events might be more frequently associated with specific atypical medications so that we can tailor the the medication choice to the patient's tolerability vulnerabilities so that we're making a judicious um, selection among the atypicals as opposed to simply using one over and over again or... Or, you know, sometimes it, we feel like we, we just do our best choice without, without a clear rationale that we can justify. So to think a little bit about what is an atypical, the word atypical doesn't tell us very much. The word atypical was meant to imply, although there isn't a clear definition, but it was meant to imply a medication with antipsychotic efficacy with minimal risk of EPS, or extrapyramidal side effects, which include you know, Parkinsonism, such as a tremor and rigidity, and without a risk of the abnormal movements of tardive dyskinesia, may also be defined with a lower risk of elevations in prolactin, which is most commonly attributed to you know, lower dopamine binding, or dopamine antagonistic activity of the atypicals. However, if we look back to when atypicals were first um, proposed back in the late 1980s, it's also the cumulative effects of other receptor antagonism, and specifically it was the serotonin 5-HT2A antagonism that was thought to be a fundamental mechanism associated with what made an atypical antipsychotic atypical. Now, the idea here is that the serotonin antagonism helps reduce the EPS effects of the dopamine antagonism. Now, serotonin and dopamine are in sort of a tonic equilibrium in the striatal cortex such that antagonizing their, the serotonin receptors tends to augment the activity of striatal dopamine um, effects such that such that there is more dopamine release or a reduced evidence of extrapyramidal side effects which may allow for enhanced efficacy with lower EPS as well as potentially the, a reduced appearance of negative symptoms. However, it's important to recognize that there is a broad range of effects of the atypicals, and there is no single hypothesis that explains why any one of the particular drugs is actually an atypical antipsychotic. Now, this is an unfortunate complexity, but understanding how each of these compare helps us sort of sort out this complexity in a way that helps us make treatment decisions. So if we look at the most commonly used antipsychotic medications relative to the standard of haloperidol or Haldol, we know that the dopamine D2 antagonism or blocking effects are the main feature of what makes haloperidol an antipsychotic medication. Now, these are dissociation constants which reflect the receptor blockade of a specific medication with the lower value being the highest blockade. So Haldol would be the standard for a very high dopamine blockade activity, which is known to give it both an antipsychotic effect, but also due to dopamine blockade in the striatal cortex, extrapyramidal. Um, side effects, um, actually stridal um, nuclei and, and stridal cortex. Um, now risperidone, as you, as you can see here, is, is also a potent D2 antagonist, um, which may account for the observation in the preceding studies that it may have some treatment effect, particularly for psychotic symptoms. However, risperidol also has a very potent serotonin 5H2TA, um, 5-HT2A receptor antagonism, which helps to intercede in the EPS that one might otherwise see with a dopamine blockade. So the risperidone serotonin antagonism reduces the EPS that you see that you would see with an equivalent dose of haloperidol although the dopamine blockade does explain why it's possible to see EPS with risperidone. Now olanzapine also has dopamine blockade, although very slightly less so, and also has the serotonin 5-HT2A antagonism. So olanzapine also has very low extrapyramidal side effects, but also does have um, antipsychotic effects as well. Now quetiapine is unique in the sense that it does not have D2 antagonism, which reduces the likelihood of seeing extrapyramidal side effects. But it might also help us explain why in the meta-analyses and in the KD trial, it did not demonstrate um, significant, or at least relative to placebo, there was no demonstrated antipsychotic or, or um, effects on on agitation in those particular studies. Um, both in the K D and the meta-analyses in the Cochrane analysis. So this helps us understand why we might see EPS with, with certain medications um, and helps us understand how to target, depending on the primary target symptoms that the patient displays, how to think about how these compare and how to select a medication. Now, it's important also to realize that atypicals are defined by a broad receptor range of activities that I'll mention. And I think before I go on, I should mention clozapine falls sort of intermediate in here with with a dissociation constant of around 200 in terms of D2 antagonism. Now, in terms of selecting a medication in a way that is best tailored to patient tolerability, the dissociation constants at the other receptors can be very informative. Now, I should disclose that the the data in these tables are from Elliot Richelson's work um, looking at um, postmortem tissue and determining the dissociation constants at human brain receptors. It was published in 2000. Now, I've extracted the dis- dissociation constants from that paper, and the 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 color coding here is is my own additions to help me um, remember to highlight which which dissociation constants may potentially have clinical meaning. so the the stars are my interpretation of these dissociation constants. Now, to think about the other receptor activities helps us. Distinguish among these and make a selection that best fits the patient's potential vulnerabilities. Now, in addition to the 2A receptors, um, antipsychotic medications also affect the 5-HT2C serotonin receptors, which influence weight gain. And weight gain is a significant issue in selecting a medication intervention. Now, um, haloperidol is not associated or has a a very um, low antagonism for the 5-HT2C. Now risperidone has more so, and olanzapine has significant antagonism, which helps us understand why, particularly in young people, weight gain is a significant issue with olanzapine. And in terms of the 5-HT2C, less so with quetiapine. Now in, in tailoring um, these medications to your patient's needs, particularly in Alzheimer's disease, um, weight gain is often uh, less of an issue compared to weight loss, particularly in later stages. So this particular side effect may or may not be a concern depending on whether the patient does have a problem with obesity or the metabolic syndrome. So again, thinking about these different effects and recognizing that dissociation constants may or may not translate directly into the clinical setting because there's a great deal clearly of patient variability. And variability, depending on what other medications are being used in a particular patient, whether it's antihypertensives or other medications. So all of this still has to be interpreted, not just purely looking at the dissociation constants, but looking at the patient and individual patient vulnerabilities. Now, the alpha adrenergic blockade of these medications accounts for the observation of some sedation and potentially hypotension. Now, all of these can incur a little bit of hypotension, and I think it's important to recognize that, monitor blood pressure, and make sure that, that, you know, whether it's an adjustment in the patients who may be on a long-standing antihypertensive or just careful use so that these effects are minimized, just knowing that there is the potential there. probably with risperidone, which has the greatest alpha-1 adrenergic blockade, as well as quetiapine, but any of these, it's worth paying attention. Um, Certainly, we don't want to incur risk of falls or, or other events related to both sedation and hypotension. So I think understanding the relative differences with Rasperidone and, and to some extent quetiapine being the higher, but all of these having a potential risk, knowing that up front can help us be proactive in minimizing any adverse effects. Now the histi- histamine H1 antagonism is most prominent with um, olanzapine, and this can incur both weight gain and sedation. And the fact that the H1 antagonism, as well as the 5-HT2C, Antagonism um, helps us understand why weight gain with olanzapine is very commonly observed, um, and quetiapine as well. So each of these do have some risk of weight gain that may not be a major issue in Alzheimer's disease but or other dementias, but certainly sedation um, is going to be more prominent with olanzapine that may help us understand why. Um, in the Sulzer analysis that the withdrawal factor was observed more commonly on olanzapine. Um, That might help us understand because it has both the sedation risk from the the H1 antagonism as well as the serotonin 2C antagonism. Furthermore, muscarinic effects, anti-muscarinic being anti-cholinergic effects of these medications, are a concern, they're pretty much non-existent in terms of anti-muscarinic or anti-cholinergic effects with Haldol or Risperdal, as well as less so with quetiapine. But olanzapine does have um, anti-cholinergic or anti- um, Blockade of the muscarinic um, M1 receptors, and this might help us also understand. Um, and the cholinergic effects certainly in the older adult would require some monitoring for possible increase in confusion or the other anticholinergic concerns, such as urinary retention, constipation, and orthostatic hypotension. So I think it's always worth thinking about these and letting these receptors guide us as to what patients may be able to tolerate. Some patients may be able to tolerate weight gain, or in some patients with with trouble sleeping, you may want to to use some calming properties of these medications to help um, balance um, the circadian day-night sleep. And so I think everything has to be used judiciously with attention to how these different medications differ so that selecting one is best tailored to the the patient's vulnerabilities, as well as, for example, if patients run other medications with anticholinergic effects, other medications with sedative properties, or um, antihypertensives. So in reviewing the receptor profiles, um, clearly the the challenges of trying to avoid adverse effects can seem really quite overwhelming to the extent that you might wonder you know why we would use these and i think it goes back to the fact that there there is a little bit of an effectiveness signal there and very often, in current practice, agitation and psychosis remain a very significant problem. And despite very creative strategies by uh, many, many very experienced clinicians, it's very challenging to find easy solutions. And certainly, if any one medication um, were significantly helpful, there's, there's no question that clinical need would have, would have detected it by now and in, in terms of large analyses across many nursing homes it's clear from recent data that approximately a third of patients are dispensed an antipsychotic medication at some point in time and these are data that were collected even after the fda warnings which suggests that even with fairly good education of care providers about these warnings, the clinical need is still driving their use, which really um, challenges us all the more to to be aware of, of what these medications do, how they differ among them, what doses are safest, and how best to judiciously use them. And unfortunately, for a for lack of good treatment interventions, we are spending a very, it's a very, very um, costly treatment scenario. And still in the absence of FDA approval, um, we still continue to wrestle with um, what to do in these clinical situations. So this brings us to what can we do knowing the medications and trying to judiciously use them, it's very important to think about how can we change the environment for the patient in a way that that best reduces the likelihood of agitation. I think, as I'll reiterate here a little bit more, that The expectation of traditional behavior uh, modification or learning that you might do in younger patients is exquisitely difficult to conduct in older patients. Um, The typical learning that you would require for any kind of cognitive behavioral intervention is, is simply not reliable or not present in patients with dementia. So that more frequently environmental interventions, reducing background noise um, is often a very difficult thing to do in the nursing homes. But turning off TVs and and allowing a low stim environment um, really is one of the more standard mainstays of treatment that despite knowledge that low stim environments are beneficial, it's still very, very hard to reduce the amount of background noise. In a busy clinical care setting. Furthermore, um, it's very difficult to avoid dehydration. To keep fluids available in a clinical care setting can be very challenging, particularly when monitoring to avoid aspiration is often necessary that patients need someone around oftentimes at mealtime or during snack time and making fluids available in a way that to avoid aspiration risk but to make them um, continuously available is a major um, care burden that is often you know, underestimated but looking around a care setting and making sure that there are fluids available and, and foods that that have a high fluid content are often another way to try to avoid dehydration among patients with Alzheimer's disease or other dementias, and certainly um, reducing any medications that are no longer necessary. It's very common for patients to continue into later stages of dementia without Um, careful reconsideration of the long-term benefits of various medications and which ones may or may not continue to be necessary. It's very, very difficult and emotionally difficult to discontinue medications that may be indicated for a specific condition. But we also have to think very carefully about what medications have a long-term benefit versus short-term adversities and what things are absolutely necessary for the long haul particularly medications like warfarin or other things that require very careful monitoring and have a very high risk of adverse events. Um, Taking a look carefully at those medications and determining what's in the best interest is a discussion that really requires an ongoing dialogue with family and care providers. I think the single most important thing is to not expect complete resolution of symptoms. I think one issue that I failed to mention that was a primary finding of the Sulzer study from the Katie analysis is that even when an effect was observed with a reduction in psychosis or reduction in hostility, very often in the Katie study, the medications were or terminated um, in order to move to the next phase where there was you know, no risk of placebo. So that even in the face of some partial benefit, there was, there's often an expectation that a complete resolution of symptoms is achievable, when very often we know in these patients that improvement of symptoms may occur, but resolution of symptoms oftentimes is not the case. So one conclusion of the Sulzer paper was that very often when a treatment response was detected, the patients were switched into the next phase at the clinician's discretion anyway with the hope that there could be a still better treatment response. And so, you know, reducing the urgency to change medicines or increase a medicine, I think, is a very important way that we can avoid adverse events by not necessarily increasing the dose within the first week or so, but trying to to wait until we can monitor symptoms in an objective way and try to determine that with an environmental intervention and with the medications on board, we can start to gradually see an improvement in behavior. And a lot of times, it's simply the clinician willing to be in contact and do symptom ratings every week or have the care providers provide symptom ratings on a regular basis Oftentimes, these things can help move through a difficult phase in time and achieve some treatment response without um, over urgency or, or expecting too much. And I think to think back into what is achievable it's very important to remember that we can change the environment we can change our reactions and our our care provision of patients but very often there is no learning in patients with dementia so the idea that with with some type of, of behavior modification we can reduce resist resistiveness to cares it's it's most of the time it's our approach and our behavior and you know keeping things well modulated and 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 slowing down a little bit with cares, all of these things, you know, despite all of the suggestions we may have, very frequently fail us on many occasions and then certain certain interactions will will work successfully on some occasions. So I think dealing with the fact that behaviors fluctuate in dementia and getting through a difficult time, and maintaining consistency in the environment oftentimes we can we can get to a, p- a place where things um, at least stabilize for a time oftentimes with careful observation we can recognize problem situations or certain times of the day where irritability comes into play sometimes this can be mapped to low blood sugars or high blood sugars or constipation or, or need for more structured toileting. All of these things really taking note of specific problem situations and the circumstances around those situations, whether it's an altercation with perhaps another patient in a facility or an altercation with certain family members or certain problem situations often with careful observation can be identified. Oftentimes amelioration by you know, recognizing a need for rest at certain times of the day or a need for a snack at certain times of the day can help. But um, dealing with the fact that things only work part of the time, it might be the single biggest emotional hurdle for the care providers to recognize. And oftentimes, you know, increasing a medication at a certain time can be beneficial if used very judiciously. But oftentimes it takes us into a situation of adversity risk um, that can be equally problematic. And one of the more difficult um, issues with care providers is the 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 wish to, to be honest and reorient. Um, patients with dementia to the fact that their, their parents are deceased or their spouse is deceased. A patient may have a persistent belief that their children are coming home, uh, maybe children that are long gone, or a persistent belief of, of certain ideas and trying to reorient um, oftentimes lends itself to confrontations or arguments that don't achieve learning on the part of the patient. So the same argument may recur repeatedly. Um, and it's very important to realize that gentle reorientation may be beneficial but if the patient continues in a persistent belief that that they're going to work the next day that they're still employed or or that they that their parents are waiting for them it's very difficult to do reorientation but rather reassurance that everything's okay today's not a work day or your parents know where you are everything's good that type of reassurance is really what the patients are asking for um, just the the reassurance that that all is well and and reorienting if if a reorienting involves you know letting a person know that that family members are deceased we have to decide whether um, whether that's the best the best choice in our interactions with patients. So I think managing delusions, paranoia, and agitation really requires a great deal of of careful, you know, restraint and well-modulated interventions where medicines can help somewhat, there's always going to be a behavioral component that requires more of a non-pharmacologic approach. It's very difficult to have very specific rules um, because simply symptoms fluctuate so much that a rule that works one day doesn't work the next day. So it's really our ability to adapt to -to day-to-day needs that's the most enormous challenge that oftentimes can be quite overwhelming for care providers and clinicians. So to simplify an approach to medications for management of behavioral symptoms with the understanding that we're simply managing symptoms, the idea of treatment um, to complete response is probably not achievable, but we can manage symptoms. So if we try to simplify an approach to avoid the adversities of atypicals um, and try to use a graded approach, there is some evidence, particularly a study by Bruce Pollack a number of years ago, suggested that SSRI interventions for um, behavioral complications of dementia may have some um, signal of effectiveness that that may be worth considering as opposed to moving straight to an antipsychotic intervention. The Bruce Pollack study um, used uh, citalopram, I believe, intervention, but sertraline is another SSRI that's well-tolerated in older adults without um, drug interactions of significant magnitude. And so often in early stages of agitation or irritability or... Um, other apathetic or, or early mood symptoms in the context of, a, of an Alzheimer's dementia, an SSRI oftentimes may be quite beneficial in, in reducing the severity. However, at times agitation does persist over and above what can be achieved in terms of treatment response with, with an SSRI. Oftentimes in this scenario, um, Trazodone is used in the clinical setting. Oftentimes at very small increments um, can achieve um, somewhat of a treatment response for irritability. Now, there are minimal data behind the use of Trazodone. The, David Sulzer again did have a study using Trazodone in patients with dementia, which showed only minimal or modest effects. There's also a meta-analysis in the Cochrane Review database that did not suggest significant efficacy for Trazodone over and above anything else or placebo in the context of dementia. However, it is clear that in the clinical setting, trazodone is commonly used and does seem to have some properties at reducing particularly irritability and restlessness, at least anecdotally in clinical environments. If psychosis hostility or aggression are predominant. We can go back to the Cochrane analysis and the Katie study and suggest that, you know, certainly um, haloperidol historically has been a mainstay um, of treatment. The newer studies from Katie and the Cochrane analysis do um, evaluate atypicals in that situation. Olanzapine and risperidone did have evidence of efficacy um, with olanzapine having some suggestion that it might increase the withdrawal and depression factor, and so it's possible that you know either haloperidol or or potentially olanzapine could be. Um, could have some effective effectiveness in this situation. But again, looking at each patient carefully, looking at their vulnerabilities, really helps us choose among this variety of choices. Although for simplicity, I often clinically move in this direction of starting with an SSRI, trying to avoid the adversities of an atypical antipsychotic by using other alternatives that may be no more efficacious, but at least have a long history of use in the context of dementia, and anecdotally do have a fair amount of evidence for at least some treatment effect. But looking overall at the big picture, it's very important, as I mentioned a number of times, that complete resolution of symptoms may not be achievable and it may be that expectations tend to drive us to perhaps use higher doses or switch medications or resort to polypharmacy more than may be of benefit. And that might be partly why we see more adverse offense in this in this situation. Um, furthermore, I think we have to realize that that these patients are in in the later stages oftentimes once agitation occurs in dementia that these patients are in the the last years of their life and sometimes in the last months and days it's very important to emphasize quality and to really work with what the patients and families and care providers expectations are and really trying to do our best at at meeting the needs of what might be lifelong values and lifelong goals for quality of life. I think, you know, efficacy is one thing, but also meeting the needs of the family and what they feel is is their priorities in terms of treatment targets. Some families might be willing to tolerate some agitation if there's greater alertness and Otherwise, um, in other scenarios, distress may be driving um, clinical treatment much more so. So I think every patient's goals and values are, may be very, very different, yet very, very important. So I think, you know, I feel very privileged to take care of patients with dementia, and I feel like it is the most important job to make the last years of a serious illness as tolerable as, as we possibly can. So I thank you very much for your attention, and I apologize for any, any places that um, I may have, have glossed over things, so hopefully the, the slides will provide a reference point for, for other um, information. So, thank you for, for listening to this Iowa Geriatric Education Center lecture on interventions for behavioral complications in dementia.